I'm Chris Turner, and this is Tapestry's Empowered to Connect podcast. Joining me today on the podcast, as usual, are Ryan and Kayla North. Hi, guys. Hey, Chris. Hello, Christopher. So, guys, I was thinking that since the name of the training course and the name of this podcast is Empowered to Connect, we should take some time to inform our listeners exactly what that means for our kids. So, why are empowering principles important for adoptive and foster children? So, I would say probably one of the most important things we can do for our kids is to empower them. I think when we empower them, we give them tools for success, right? When you talk about connected parenting, we talk about connecting, correcting, and empowering tools, right? Mm -hmm. And I think um, they're all important, but they all have to be used together. And so the empowering tools give the kids, um, they basically set them up for success, right? They They set our kids up to allow the connecting and the correcting tools to actually work Mm. because it gives them what they need to be successful in all the realms of their life, right? So, I mean, we meet their physical needs. um, We empower them when we meet their sensory needs. And when we provide that structure that they need and the felt safety that they need, we're allowing them to learn and to grow when they feel safe. So one of those empowering principles that helps our kids is providing a safe and structured environment where they have what we call in the class felt safety. So why is felt safety so important? So when we first encountered this kind of parenting, Kayla Kayla kind of embraced it right away, but I was a little slower on the uptake, which um, at, at the risk of running afoul of the dads out there, is probably uh, more common occurrence um, than not, right? right. So, um, so this idea of felt safety was uh, was hard for me at first because I was the guy who went, well, well they're safe, right. right? Right. They came from uh, an environment where they weren't safe. Now they're physically safe. And I had confused feeling safe with being safe and thought they were the same thing, which is what I think most of us do, right? Mm-hmm. One, the classic example of that is statistically you're safer in an airplane than you are in the car that drives you to the airport yet right. nobody's afraid of driving to the airport but every time you fly like the last time I flew a couple of weeks ago uh, there was a person next to me that was squeezing the life out of her spouse's hand and like pushing the chair in front of her on takeoff she was so stressed out by it so even though she is safe she doesn't feel safe mm-hmm. right yeah. and that's and that, at the end of the day that's all that matters whether the person feels safe or not right the reality that they're safe is not as important as whether they feel safe or not. When we first came to Connected Parenting, I remember when we took the class all those years ago, and our oldest son was maybe six at the time, and I'd get home from work, and one of the things that I, that I like to do when I get home is reconnect with Kayla. You know, just take a few minutes, a hug, a kiss, kind of, hey, how's your day, how's your day, and kind of reintegrate the family that way. That's kind of my preferred landing when I get home. But but our son, we were sitting in the kitchen, and our son kept coming in from the backyard. The kids were playing in the backyard. And I'd say to him, hey, go outside and play. 
And he's like, okay. And then he'd come inside and, you know, he needed water. He needed the bathroom. He needed to get a baseball. He needed to get a baseball glove. He needed to get a football. He needed water again. By this time, he needed to go to the bathroom again, right? Just reason upon reason for coming inside. And every time he was told, hey, mom and I trying to talk, go play outside. It's a nice day. Go play outside. Um, so I shared that story with Michael Monroe. And he said, hey, um, would you consider that maybe he doesn't feel safe? And he doesn't need to come inside for a baseball water or the bathroom or whatever. He just wants to make sure that you're still there. Mm. And so if you can change your response and don't just go, everything's fine, go play outside. But the next time he comes in, say, hey, buddy, I know you, need to, you want to check that mom and dad are here. And I know that's important to you. So anytime you want to come inside and do that, you go right ahead and we'll be here, okay? And I told him that's never going to work. And he laughed and he said, just give it a try. Just give it a try. I'm like, okay, I'll humor you. So we went home, and <laughs> next day, same drill. And so I remembered his words, and, and I told him, hey, bud, I know you just want to make sure mom and dad are still here, and anytime you feel like you need to do that, come on in, and we'll be here. And a couple of months later, he came back, and we high-fived him, and we didn't see him for about 30 minutes. Now, I know that story suggests that things like turn on a dime, right. which they don't, but in that case, once we had given him permission to come back, and we weren't putting a wall between us and him, but rather built a bridge across that divide, that made him feel safe, which gave him the security to be outside because he had a level of felt safety about uh, mom and dad being there. Mm. Yeah, because he was able to go for a longer stretch of time when he knew that it was really okay. And we had a similar situation, I think, with um, one of ours that used to wake up during the night and would wake up and would say, I'm scared. And we were like, you're not scared. Go back to bed. Because <laughs> we were tired. Thank and you for saying we and not identifying me as a brother in that story too. <laughs> and so the child would like, you know, lip quiver, kind of walk back to bed. And, and then we'd feel terrible. And one of us would go and say, come here. You can come snuggle with us. Because we really were reacting out of tiredness mostly. But we finally said, because this child would wake up literally every morning at 3.30. Mm. And we were like, what on earth? This is crazy. We don't have an infant in the house. Why are we getting up every night during the night? And it was like clockwork. And so one night before bed, Ryan says to her, you know what, sweetie? I know sometimes you get scared during the night. And he said, and if you feel scared, you come and knock on our door and and we will will be right there for you. Okay, sweetie? And uh, she was like, okay. And she came and knocked on our door that night. And then she didn't knock on our door for a couple of nights. We told her that every night when she went to bed. Mm. And then it was a couple of nights before she came back. And then it, the stretch came was long, farther and farther. And now she's almost nine. And maybe once every couple of months, she might wake up during the night mm. and say, you know, I'm scared. And she wants to come in and snuggle. But it was just that felt safety for her was that I know that I can go if I'm scared. And they're not going to go, you're not scared, go back to bed, <laughs> you know. Yeah, we had a similar situation with one of ours and that, you know, he had the monsters thing going. Oh, yeah. And so <clears throat> I'd always kind of joked it off as, you know, there aren't any scary monsters in here. There are only funny monsters in here. You know, <laughs> look, here's Elmo. He's a funny monster. Oh, here's Cookie Monster. He's a funny monster or whatever other stuffed animals he might have had right. you know, that were yeah. not really animals of some kind. But, you know, right. Those were monsters. And that didn't seem to work too well in the <laughs> beginning. And so then 
I latched onto this thing of, well, let me find out where he thinks all the monsters are. And so I asked these questions of, you know, well, where are the monsters? And, you know, the typical places that we under associate. The bed, under the, the bed, closet. in the closet, blah, blah, blah. Right? And so <clears throat> I started checking under the bed and in the closet. And I have a little flashlight that I usually carry in my pocket. And so I would get it out and let him look with me that there were no monsters under the bed or in the closet or not even behind the curtains. Yeah. Um, and so basically every nook and cranny. And, you know, like Ryan said earlier, it wasn't like on a dime he stopped being scared of monsters. But right. these days, it's bedtime is a much smoother process. Yeah. I don't, we, he's not talking over the monitor and whining and that kind of stuff anymore. Yeah. So Because the more he realized that he really was safe, right. it wasn't just that you said, you're fine. Monsters aren't real. Go right. to bed. You know, because that's our... I think that's our natural inclination is to be like, look, you're safe. Just trust me. You're safe. Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing our kids struggle with is trust, mm-hmm. right? They don't trust us. And so they need to know that they know that they know that they're safe. Right. And there's so, I mean, we can, we could probably come up with stories one after the other of times when our kids didn't feel safe, even though we knew that they were safe and we knew that they were perfectly fine. And I think that is one of the things that when I talk to parents that they struggle with the most, and I struggled with it too, because some of it felt like um, coddling our kids Mm -hmm. and well, I'm the parent and I know you're safe, so it doesn't matter. Mm. But if our kids are still afraid, then I feel like we need to help them get to a place where they're not afraid because that's mm-hmm. what it is, right? If there's, if they don't feel safe, then they feel afraid. The opposite of feeling safe is feeling afraid, we right? Need to, we need to do the detective work to find out why they're afraid. Yes, absolutely. try to alleviate those fears while not dismissing them. Yeah. yeah. When we think about making an environment of felt safety in our home, um, there are a few um, targets let me try that again. There are a few places that are easily identifiable where we can really be active participants. And um, one of them is bedtime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so I remember somebody posted those internet memes on Facebook that said, uh, parents of large families know that bedtime is like a game of whack-a-mole. <laughs> Once one goes down, another one pops up. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Which is true. Um, it's just true. And so, and part of that. It's because the kids are afraid, right? And and so we, um, as parents, we want bedtime to just be fast and smooth because we want the kids to go to bed. We want to uh, you know, clean the kitchen, work on a project, do some work, watch TV, mess around on the internet, whatever. We just want a little bit of downtime before we ourselves go to bed. And so... Bedtime becomes hard because you've got two competing interests, right? You've got the kids who want to prolong it as long as possible right. from, for a multitude of reasons. Number one, it's one of the high points of them getting your attention during the day because parents are pretty actively involved in bedtime. We even do nurturing things like help them brush their teeth when they're small, right? And we read them stories, and they want to drag that on as long <laughs> as possible, and we just want it over. Right. Okay, we just want it to be done. And so... Um, where a lot of those fears come in at bedtime, right? I'm yeah. going to be scared. I'm afraid of the dark. You've gone for this wonderful connected time of nurturing with mom and dad to in a room by yourself and it's dark. And so all of these fears come there. And I think 
going after bedtime is a place where you can create some real felt safety is a great starting point for families. Mm. Right, so here's a couple of things, right? We, Kayla said we told one of our daughters, you wake up during the night and you're scared, you need to come and find us. And that, that gave her some security, knowing that mom and dad would be there. And so we repeat that and we tell that. We used to have uh, at the foot of our bed like a little pallet made up with some blankets and a pillow and stuff and told the kids, hey, you can, when you're coming here and you're afraid, we've already got a bed made for you. And knowing that meant that they weren't using it very much. Uh, another one of one of the things we've done over the years, and um, we're doing it tonight, um, our four-year-old is laying in our bed because she's able to calm and regulate and able to fall asleep laying in our bedroom where it smells like mom and dad and reminds her of mom and dad. And then when we go to bed, we move her. So there are some real, and none of those are big things that I said, right? But if you can start building that environment of felt safety around bedtime, it's a great place because there's so many anxieties for children. And so the, the, there's two great things about that. Number one, over time, bedtime will go smoother because you'll get into the routine. Predictability is good for creating felt safety, right? That's right. why eat dinner at the same time, brush your teeth, have the same ritual. That's why we read the stories and those kinds of things, right? Um, so over time, um, bedtime becomes better because it's a predictable thing, but predictability also really cultivates your child's ability to trust relationally. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the, that's the real positive consequence you're going for in creating an environment of felt safety is when they live in that environment where they feel safe, they will learn that they can trust you because you are the author of that felt safety in their lives. And I think one thing that um, some parents struggle with is when we talk about this felt safety and creating that environment and we have to kind of alter our own behaviors to help our kids feel safe right and oftentimes and it's usually dads will say well the real world's not like that when my kid goes to school everybody's not gonna you know make sure that this happens or that happens so that they feel safe and I'm like no but your home is your safe place and when they learn that home is a safe place, then they're able to venture out into those places that are not quite as safe and still return to that safe base of home and be mm-hmm. okay. And so um, I had a friend who she one day was not able to make it to car line in time to pick her child up. But she was usually one of the first few people in line. Um, and her son would come out and he would see her in line and he was fine. Well, one day she realizes she was running errands and she was like, I'm not going to make it in time. So she called a friend and said, Hey, can you go pick up my son from school? Um, cause I'm not going to get there in time and he's going to freak out. Well, he didn't know that this friend was coming. She'd called the school, but somehow the message had not gotten to the kid. Right. So he goes outside, he sees mom's not there and he begins to panic. Mm. And she said for months after that, she had to be the first person in line or he was in a flat out panic by the time she got there. So she said, I had to rearrange my schedule every day to make sure because that one time that I wasn't there, and even though I'd sent somebody to pick him up, Mm -hmm. his panic level was so high that in order for him to feel safe, I needed to be the first person he saw when he walked out of the school that day. Because he would already have started the anxiety of his mom going to be there before he even walked out the door. And so she said, a lot of people would say, well, that seems unreasonable that he just needs to get over it. You come every single day to pick him up. Why is he so panicked? But what was important to her was that he felt safe and he felt 
secure. And he, she doesn't have to do that anymore. I mean, he's in high school now. She's right. not the first person to pick him up from school. <laughs> he's got his own car now. So, you know, he can pick himself up from school <laughs> now. But, you know, I mean, it's just for a while she had to rearrange things because he didn't feel safe. And I think a lot of our kids um, being left is a real concern for them. A lot mm-hmm. of our kids have been left. A lot mm-hmm. of our kids have had adults that didn't come back. Mm. And so we have to really keep that in the forefront of our mind for things like pickup time when we're picking kids up from school or um, we had one who for soccer practice, if we were running five minutes late, would absolutely be terrified we weren't going to be there. And Mm. we eventually ended up getting him a phone because we knew that he needed to have a way to get a hold of us if something were to happen so that he knew, you know, that we were going to be there. Right. And it was really a great thing. We got him a phone much earlier than we expected, but it was all about felt safety for him because people would say, well, why did you get a 12-year-old a phone, you mm. know? Because um, we'd always kind of said, you know, when they're 16 and they're driving a car and they really need it, they can get a phone. Mm. But then we were like, you know, for him, he really needed to have a phone to be able to get a hold of us whenever he was away from us and not have to rely on asking somebody else Mm-hmm. to call or whatever because that was uh, it was a felt safety issue for him I like the car line story yeah. uh, a lot because it illustrates a point that I think is really 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 important and that is that if you want to create an environment of felt safety if you want to connect with your child you have to learn to speak their language and so I don't mean like English Spanish French whatever <laughs> but they, the, their language is a language of fear Mm -hmm. Their language is a language of no trust. And so what she needed to communicate, right? Language is a communication device. What she needed to communicate is that I will be here when you need me. Because him coming out of school wasn't about being picked up. It was about him needing his mother. I will be here when you need me, right? So when we have kids who are hungry, well, if they constantly want to eat, over time, because you have sympathy for it when, when the children arrive, over time, you start to get irritated by the fact that they always want food, that they're always hoarding food, that you're finding wrappers in rooms where food doesn't usually go, when you're finding ants in their bedroom because they show half-eaten food underneath their beds, right? All of those things. But if you will remember that their language is, I come from a history where food was not predictable, mm. then that puts it in a completely different context, right? That, that lends perspective that just observing it doesn't give you so that's why I think um, what I mean what I mean by speaking their language it means communicating on a level that meets their needs because children in order to feel safe right food is a major source of security for people and so we cannot we cannot dismiss that and just go oh why do you want to eat all the time you just had a snack two two minutes ago because I'm that guy who's like seriously we're going to go broke on snacks here folks (laughs) yes he is but at the end of the day um, the truth of the matter is um, a granola bar is a source of security because they they know, okay, because it's not about the food. It's about knowing that you have access to the food, which mm-hmm. is the language they're right. speaking. And so I think part of creating that environment of felt safety is speaking your kid's language because they need to know that their needs are going to be met. Yeah, and a lot of our kids have food issues. And I think that's a good point because... I remember we had a foster daughter once, and I may have told this story on a podcast before, but it really illustrates this felt safety because she would get up every morning and 
she wanted to eat as soon as she got up. Well, I was getting ready to go to work and taking the other older kids to school and she was going to a babysitter because she was four. And so she was going to a babysitter. And so I would wake her up last and get her ready. Well, if any of the other kids were still eating or even if she just felt a little bit hungry, she really felt like she had to eat something right then or she had to have food right then. Mm. And it didn't matter if I told her as soon as we walked down the street to the babysitter's house, which was literally five houses down, you're going to get breakfast. Right. You know, Miss Bethany has food for you when you get there. Mm. She's got yummy breakfast. You know, it didn't matter how many times I told her that. If I didn't physically put food in her hand, mm. we had a meltdown. And so I could have fought that and been like, this is ridiculous. Just get in the car and go. You're going to get food in just a minute. Or I could say, here's a banana. And she could take it, and she never even ate it. She mm. would take a banana or a Nutri-Grain bar or something something in her hand, and she would come home with it in the afternoon <laughs> because she would eat whatever was at Miss Bethany's house. Right. But she needed to know that she had the food just in case. And so when we figured out that that was what was going on, it was really easy to provide for her felt safety right then. Mm-hmm. You know, Even though I knew... There was not a chance that Miss Bethany was not going to give her food when she walked in the door. Right. She had to have that in her hand. She needed that felt safety. Well, it's just like the Sydney Poitier story that yep. Ryan is fond of telling. Because I like saying Poitier. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you share that with us, Ryan? Okay, so Sydney Poitier is a famous actor who has won Oscars. And helped break down a lot of color barriers in Hollywood, yes, too, yeah. along the way. To Sir With Love is one of my mother's fav- favorite movies. But he grew up in devastating poverty. I mean, there were days when they didn't have food. And so he was on Oprah one time, and they were talking about his childhood, and, and he told her that he had a candy bar in his suit jacket pocket. And, and she asked him why, and he said, um, because I spent so many years of my life not being sure when I'd eat again that I don't ever leave my house without knowing that I have instant access to food the moment I need it. And he said, I have a lot of money, wealthy famous people would probably give him food Mm -hmm. if he didn't have any money on him. But in order for him to function outside of his house, he takes food with him so he knows that if he is hungry, he has immediate access to food, which is calming for him and allows him to function the way he wants to. Which is totally a felt safety issue because, like you just said, he's a famous actor with lots of money. He could literally walk into any restaurant he wants to and buy a meal immediately. And yep. yet he has to have that with mm-hmm. him all the time. So um, I know that you want to do like a series of, of, of episodes here on, on each one of the, the three principles, empowering, connecting, and correcting. Um, so I think that, you know, if there is like one takeaway from talking about this creating an environment of felt safety, um, and that is that kids who feel like their environment and the people in their environment, um, those relationships are safe and predictable um, will over time learn to trust people and develop healthy emotions mm. um, and behaviors because their behaviors are trust-driven, not fear-driven. Yep. And that's really what you want over time is healthy emotions. And, and, and sometimes when we're in the trenches, we can't really see the connection between a granola bar and responding appropriately to right. disappointment. But over time... That's what that's what happens. So once again, guys, thanks for being on the podcast. 
Thanks, Chris. Delightful as always. If you have a question for us that will fit into 140 characters, you may tweet it to us at tapestryibc. If you require a bit more room, you can email us at tapestry at irvingbible.org. You can also find us on Facebook at tapestryibc. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or the Google Play Store. Just search for Tapestry Adoption Podcast. If you have enjoyed and gotten value from our show, we would appreciate a review in either location. Empowered to Connect is the training and support community of Tapestry, the adoption and foster care ministry of Irving Bible Church in Irving, Texas. You can check the show notes for relevant links from this episode and find more resources on our website, tapestryministry.org. Thanks for listening.